0: history History. through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes, presented on the air and online by Provident Payments, proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler.
1: Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. We've learned they don't have to go untold. As long as we're willing to do something about it. Sometimes all it takes is a little initiative to ask a few questions combined with a willingness to listen. And you never really know what might result. Our goal here is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice, to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in the process, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation As your family gathers for the holidays, perhaps there's a veteran in your life who you ought to gently ask about his or her service to our country. Again, you never know where that might take you. This weekend is a very special weekend for some of the veterans we've met here on Hometown Heroes. A special 100th birthday parade in Bakersfield, California, honors World War II vet Bill Glaspie. Last time on this program, we heard a few of Bill Pratt's memories from Pearl Harbor aboard the USS Nevada, and he marks birthday number 102 this weekend. But this past Friday night in Visalia, California, they gathered to congratulate World War II Navy vet Mike Kalustian on his 100th birthday. And I got to catch up with this newly minted centenarian. When you were a boy, did you ever think, hey, I'm going to live to be a hundred years old?
2: No, I never they thought I'd be that long because most of, everybody I knew was dying at a young age. My young kids were dying under the 30s and my dad and my mom lived to be 80. And so I figured, well, I'll be going anyway anyway, but I didn't realize I'd be going on to 100. But I think my children, my grandson, everybody keeping me in love. Really appreciate what the dear Lord has done for me. Dear God, Jesus, I just thank you.
1: Well, you know, I've I've interviewed a lot of centenarians, people yeah. who are a hundred years old or older, but I've never met a centenarian who has his own chocolate bar with his <laughs> face on it and happy hundred. Th- What's the story there? Where'd that come from?
2: It came from my granddaughter. Yeah, yeah they decided to do something. They found this picture in the bedroom there and took that, went with Hershey and got the candy, went and got the napkins, the date, 100, anniversary party coming up on the 100 years.
1: I'm looking at it here. It's It's got some information on the back. You know, you got to put the nutritional information on the candy bar, and it says the amount and the serving and the percentage of the daily value it says ingredients milk chocolate to commemorate a hundred years of memories joy love and life and then it says love a hundred percent laughter a hundred percent family and friends a hundred percent birthday wishes a hundred percent that's pretty creative huh right.
2: thank god i really appreciate my granddaughter and her husband and my friend, my Bill, my Karen, Nancy, Gail, they're, they're all They all work towards me, keeping me in healthy and straight. Gail makes the food for me, Gail makes the medicine for me, and Nancy makes the meals also. And I'm just, everything's wonderful. I got a wonderful son, grandson, and I miss everybody a wonderful thank you.
1: We'll hear more about Mike's 100th birthday a little later in the program, but I want you to know the rest of his story, too. He was just 96 when he first shared it here on Hometown Heroes, but it is quite a story, including the miracles it required for him to even exist in the first place when you think about what his parents endured in escaping the Armenian genocide.
2: My dad was in World War One. My mother and her mother and her brother somehow escaped Turkey all the way somehow through to Marseille, France. And there she was invited by a relative to meet her husband. And they were married at an age where she never knew her husband, never knew him, never except that he was from the same part of Turkey. My mother, by her uncle, Agopian gopian came all the way to South Milwaukee where she resided and her children.
1: So your father was in the US Army in World War One? Right. Yeah. So his family had immigrated earlier.
2: No, my dad his folks got killed in the you know, during the massacre in Turkey. My dad somehow got to Haha to America and joined the army. And then after the war my uncle introduced... Well, my mother was an orphanage in Marseille somehow, and somehow Roldo invited his niece to come and meet my dad in New York. And there they got together and got married, and my mother was about maybe 12 years old at the time. My dad was working in a foundry at the time, and my mother was a mother and raised children. Her first child died... And then I was born. Three years later, my sister was born. And then four years later, my brother Herbie was born. And that was our story of the South Milwaukee going up.
1: So your mother was 13 when you were born. Yeah. And I'm just pressing back in here yeah. because this is so unlike what most of us are used to. Mm. Such an unusual situation. So your father, both of his parents were killed by yeah. the Ottoman Turks. right? And, and your mother's parents also?
2: Yeah, except my mother. My, her, her dad was killed mm-hmm. by the gender. My, my grandma somehow with my, her son and daughter moved, migrated from Turkey to Marseille. In Marseille, France, my mother put in a sovereignage of uh, suffer home. Mm-hmm. And there, by I don't know how, an uncle introduced my mother to her husband-to-be. Never knew who he was and they got married in New York and came to South Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There they grew up and had their children.
1: It's a pretty unusual and incredible story, isn't it? Right.
2: Well, in the little sanitary where she lived, she was Turkish-speaking and my dad was Armenian-speaking. So when they were in the home, my mother couldn't speak Turkish. She had to learn Armenian or she would get slapped in her hand. To, don't talk Turkish that's no that's not good don't talk it you talk Armenian and so Turk, she got to learn Turkish through my dad and then we by you know we had Armenian and we could under, we couldn't understand Turkish because we didn't know it at that time mm-hmm. but later in life we got to learn the language
1: how much of all of that did you understand as a young boy because that, that's a big deal there.
2: She would never explain the worst part of the war. She would just explain, no, that's not good. Don't talk. That's not good. Just listen to what I tell you. She never told us how my grandpa got killed, how they experienced experience from Turkey to France, Marseille.
1: And I, I don't want to overemphasize yeah. this, but you know, to me, it seems almost miraculous that you exist because— yeah. It's pretty unique that your mother, a young girl, was able to escape because a lot of girls in her circumstances did not escape right, or they were taken by the Turks and made right. whatever See, and your father, his parents are killed, and right. he gets here yeah. and he earned his citizenship by serving in the army yeah, in World mean, War I right, right. What a story for you to be born into right, and while we're on that topic, because you know we hear on this program, we talk about World War two and oftentimes that involves the Holocaust and what the Nazi regime did to its prisoners. But the issue of World War I and the Armenian genocide is still somehow debated and still denied by some people in the world. Right. How do you react to that when you catch wind of people saying, no, that didn't really happen?
2: Well, we, we have to fight the battle with them. We, we can't win the battle no matter what. They, they say, oh, no, that didn't happen. But I can tell it happened because my mother... And her mother came all the way from Turkey and explained the massacre of, of how they survived. My mother got to Marseille, France. A lot of relatives went to Syria, Iran. they all dispersed. That's what they call disparate, you know. Yeah. They all went wherever. And my mother's home got to Marseille, France somehow and put her in a serfinage home.
1: Yeah. So you grew up with no grandparents. Right. And a mother who's still a child. Yeah. Really?
2: Right. And
1: this is during the Great Depression. Right. What was... do you remember about those early years in Milwaukee? Uh,
2: you know, we just grew up like, like we are. You know, we grew up as in did. We didn't have money. We didn't have money. We didn't. We we used to go up and down the alley looking for stuff to sell to the junk man. you know. But we never did work anywhere in our industry like now. These kids get out of school, they can get a job right away. We didn't have anything. We didn't have any McDonald's or whatever. We had to go, and if you were older, you couldn't get a job because you were too young. So all we did was on the, going to Lake Michigan and swimming in the water and watching them. What's up, fishing, whatever. Mm-hmm. We never did have any experience of working and making some money.
1: Do you remember having some ideas when you were a kid, hey, when I grow up, this is what I'm going to do?
2: Well, when I was in high school, I grew. my idea was to join the Navy. I don't know how, but I wanted to join the Navy. And the guy from the Navy Navy came to my home and wanted my mother to approve my dad to go in before high school in 1942. My mother says, no, you're not taking my son until he gets from high school. I want to see him graduate. He's the only one that's going to graduate from high school. So I finished high school in 1942, and I went and tried to help my folks out by helping a little bit. Then finally I said, Ma, I want to go in the Navy. And that's what happened. I got I got into the Navy, got into Great Lakes, got on the, what do they call it, boot camp. Mm-hmm. And then from there we went by our train to San Francisco, Francisco, we got on a battleship, San Francisco to Hawaii. and Hawaii, we got our ship at Pearl Harbor, and that was it. Our young was from, like, say, 15 years old. We were just a gang of kids at home. We just got together neatly. We never fought, never had, like, these Nisekir's now doing, you know. We just, as a gang, we talked nicely with each other, except once in a while, the Polish guys and Armenian guys would get together and have a little fragus, but that was about <laughs> it, yeah. We never had guns, never had knives. We just fist fight, that was it.
1: Here in Visalia, throughout the San Joaquin Valley, people have become familiar with Armenian cuisine. Was there something your mother used to make? Homemade Armenian food growing up? Oh, yeah.
2: My mother used to make, uh, she had a a rolling pin and dough. She would make dough, roll it out, and make this pinch, real thin dough. She cut it in squares and take each dough with a little piece of meat inside ground beef, put in the middle and pinch it like a wingnut. That was hard, but it was a little bit old. And then she could make cheese puff. Same thing, take the same dough, put bottom of cheese around, lift the other half of the other dough over and cut it out and fry it. Uh uh-huh. But I, yeah. Uh-huh. But cheese made my baklava like mad for me. That's back and I didn't like it. <laughs> she made Lokum, that bread Candy-looking thing, yeah. Sunday, Sunday, the Turkish delight. Uh-huh. She would make that. Whatever I wanted, she would make for me.
1: Grape leaves, too? Grape leaves.
2: We used to suffer because grape leaves you can't find in Wisconsin. You had to go in the woods and look for a place, and we got poison ivy and whatever, trying to find grape leaves. Here in California, you got invece, tons of ivories. Oh. So you got poison ivy trying to find oh, grape leaves. Oh, yeah, I got poison ivy. Bad. Uh, <laughs> oh, great. I hated that. Ma, I don't want to. No, come on, we got to get grape leaves. Go to Rashi, go to Kenosha, any wooded area, you look for grape leaves. Uh, never heard to... one like that.
1: What was the high school you went to?
2: South Milwaukee High. Did you play any sports there? The only thing I played with was uh, boxing. Yeah. I attended the boxing, match and uh, learned to how to box in the Navy. In high school, then in the service, had a box.
1: Well, you talked about wanting to go in the Navy and having to convince your parents. But before that, you know, something happened that I always like to ask about because it seems like everybody remembers December 7th, 1941. Right. So I'm guessing since your birthday is December 17th, you're just looking forward to turning 18. Right. And then something happened. So how did you find out about Pearl Harbor and what happened there?
2: Well, you know, it was a Sunday morning. I was on my way to Armenian church. And by home, I thought that we had a place called the Cigar Store. It had four pool tables. So I went in there for a short time to see what was going on with the guys. And that's the war came over the radio. And that's when we knew that December 7th, the war was gone. And I said to my folks, I want to go. She said, no, you're going to finish school. And that was my story about waiting to to grant from 1942 until I got December.
1: Did that shock you at all that the Japanese attacked that now America was at war or did you kind of see it coming?
2: you know how young kids are you know it was hey so we'll go there we'll kill them you know we'll go fight you know but now we were I don't know if I had that kind of anger in there just I just know that it happened. I was on my way to church, and that was it.
1: It's time for our first break, but when we come back, some of Mike Kalustian's memories aboard the USS New Orleans during World War II. You can find a photo of one of America's newest centenarians and his special 100th birthday chocolate bar at hometownheroesradio.com, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I have found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. What I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's
0: 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty.
1: Welcome back to Hometown Heroes on a weekend in which World War II Navy veteran Mike Kalustian celebrates his 100th birthday in Visalia, California. That is a long way from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he grew up, and a long, long way from the Pacific waters he covered aboard the cruiser USS New Orleans during World War II. When you consider how much time he spent on that ship and how many battles he survived, it's important to note one key factor we haven't heard him share yet.
2: I don't know how to swim. Oh, really? I can't swim for a dime. I've tried Lake Michigan. I couldn't fight. And uh, our school didn't have a pool. You know, my schools have a swimming pool. We didn't have a swimming pool, so I didn't learn. Lake Michigan was always ice cold, and I didn't want to swim in the cold water. So I never learned how to swim. That didn't worry me about joining the Navy in case I got sunk or whatever. You know, I just figured, I'll go, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I never. Well, that's you just answered the question. Yeah. I know everyone listening is asking in their minds: "It's why would you join the navy if you don't know how to swim?"
2: I never thought of it. I just I just joined the navy because I liked it, and why I didn't want to go into war, I don't know. I don't know. And at camp boot camp, you had to swim in the pool to you know, it was one of the mustard, or you go and get tr- training for swimming. Mm-hmm. Well, I just somehow told a friend of mine to swim. The pool, because their, their school had a pool, Cuddey, Wisconsin had a pool. Mm-hmm. So Leland smoked the pool, uh, swam the pool for me, and gave, said, Go over there, you know, because first they told me, Go over here, you're going to like swimming. Because I jumped in the pool, and I went about two feet, and they had to pull me out because I couldn't swim. But I thought dog feet, I couldn't do it. They said, Go over here. I said, ah, I'm not going to go swim in the pool. I heard about what they do, dive, high dives in the oil and this. Thing. So I told Leland to swim the pool and tell me to give him my name so I don't have to go to the pool. And that's how we got out of there.
1: So he swam, got out, and told him, I'm Mike Kalustyan. Yeah. And then he had to do it again for himself? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was that easy to pull the wool over their eyes, oh, huh?
2: Well, there eight, how many guys are in that pool jumping in a naked <laughs> pool? Uh, I thought I could swim it. But boy, mm. I tell you, from here, I don't know, 12 feet maybe? They pulled me out.
1: Were there any other uh, challenges or obstacles in boot camp that you had to deal with?
2: No, that was other than uh, the duties that we had. You yeah, know, like one job was cleaning uh, the grease and stuff out of other, the sludge. What do you call those things? Traps. Yeah. Traps. Yeah. Clean that stinky thing. But most of them was okay. It was only nine weeks of boot camp, and we were And from then we went on board ship. I took my couple years whatever, you get your rating for rating and I go take my got on, I got up to first class of machining, man, mm-hmm. in uh, four years. So I was happy. I just, I didn't do it, you know, like these guys would gamble and this and that, I wouldn't. I just read my book and magazines or whatever and that was it. You had
1: your, your boot camp at Great Lakes, in yeah. fact there's a picture of you of your whole yeah. class that came through there. <laughs> We'll Put that up at hometownheroesradio.com. Did you get to say goodbye to your family before no, you headed west? Uh-uh, no, no.
2: We came together in Milwaukee and then somehow they loaded us up, went the back door at the arcade, where the headquarters for the neighborhood We went the back step onto a bus and went all the way to Great Lakes. And my folks are still up there waiting for whatever was going to happen with me. They never got they to didn't say know, goodbye they to me? No. They wow. didn't seem to be except after boot camp when we had, I think we had a, maybe a couple of days a week or something, Liberty. And that was the only other time.
1: I was just wondering with, you know, what you described about your mother and how she really didn't want you to go. Was there a, an emotional moment when you had to say goodbye to her before you were going to be heading overseas?
2: When we were leaving to go to, yeah, I was kind of sad. I was disappointed my mother that I didn't really stay home and help protect the family. You know, Mm -hmm. I just went off into the, not thinking about taking my folks and when I just helped my dad out. I just went to the Navy, and after I got on the the ship, I said, you know, maybe I should have stayed home.
1: So you sail under the Golden Gate heading out to Hawaii, and you still really don't know what kind of ship you're going to be on?
2: No. All we know is we got on uh, the Pennsylvania battleship and took us to Hawaii to Pearl Harbor, and there we were escorted on top of the ship and routed out to where we were going. What you're going here, you're going there, you're going. The only guys they didn't want, they wanted radio men really bad. Anybody that could re- do a radio, they got good radians. Others, like me, I, went, I couldn't tell, did, 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 I didn't know a thing about it. So <laughs> Morse code wasn't yeah, your strong suit? No, huh? Morse code was out.
1: Well, and you mentioned the Pennsylvania. So your ride from San Francisco to Pearl Harbor is the battleship Pennsylvania uh-huh. which had been in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attacked and was right, damaged yeah. there.
2: My ship was there too to the, New, the Orleans. New Orleans yeah, right.
1: Yeah. I'm just curious on that cuz I'm just thinking of you. Yeah. You know, you're still a teenager and you're going from San Francisco to Pearl Harbor. There's a lot of guys on that ship who've already experienced war. Right. Did they tell you guys any stories? Did you get a feel for what this might be like?
2: Well, a lot of the guys were telling me stories, but then I noticed that a lot of the guys had good ratings, like first class or second class, from drinking or whatever, they'd get busted down to a pavement. So I would try to say, no, I can't go drink because I'm too young. I can't go in the bar here. No. So all we did was walk on the streets looking for pineapple juice, whatever, going to the zoo, you know, just sightseeing around side. Sight.
0: hmm
1: and what about Pearl Harbor itself? Because this is where the war started for America. Yeah. Did you see things there that were indicative of what had happened a year and a half earlier there?
2: The only thing I noticed was that the ship was there, the Arizona. Yeah. And uh, other than that, the town itself was okay. People, I mean, there was just like, there was no disaster or anything. We didn't notice anything different other than going to uh, Waikiki Beach.
1: So you... You ride over on a battleship, but now they're going to put you on a cruiser. Cruiser. Did you know what your ship had already been through when you came aboard?
2: I knew that it had lost uh, its bow and uh, was put together when we got to Honolulu. There was nothing wrong with it.
1: So, yeah, so this ship, the New Orleans, it had been at Pearl Harbor. Right. It's been through the Battle of Midway. And then in November '42, it's in the Battle of Tassafranga, and yeah. literally the whole bow gets blown off the ship.
2: Up to the bow, number two turret. That's 150 feet probably.
1: And you've seen all those pictures? Yeah. That's pretty jarring that, to look that's at, in, isn't it? That
2: sort of scares you. You say, oh my goodness, you know, way from down below, from the bow to number two, that's 150 feet. That's quite a few. Luckily, you know, most guys, all the doors are slammed closed there. So you, no watertight.
1: But you haven't experienced any of this before. I can't imagine it's that encouraging to know that kind of thing could happen and has happened to the right. very ship you're joining.
2: Right. See, we were two of the worst battles. We, I, did, I missed out just by a couple of months. Mm-hmm. But uh, after run, uh around, Macon Island, Tarawa, and then go on and on and on, Guam, Saipan, Tinian, whatever, you know, the big, those were after the Battle of the Philippines. Philippines and and Sleti were the worst of them. all the battles, were very involved with these. Making the uh, Okinawa with the smoke fine so that the airplane couldn't penetrate and see clouds. They couldn't see what ship we wanted to hit. And then the sailors, the the pilots chased uh, ships, aircraft carriers, so far during the Philippine Battle that they ran out of fuel and they all dunked wherever because they were so happy shooting all the Navy pilots down from Japan, they had forgot. And they they had to dunk their ship. And that's the first of the war that the Navy the majority altered to put on your battleship lights and pick up the strangers by survivor. They put on all the lights and saved all those sailors that they could possibly save from being dunked on their plane.
1: So you come aboard this cruiser. What did they tell you your job was?
2: then, not They just lined us up and said, OK, you guys go in the after room. I did know what the after room was. Okay, I went down (laughs) and down the it. I didn't know, I didn't know gauges. I didn't know valves. I didn't know how to open a close, open a close or close a a valve. I didn't know anything. I just, at Great Lakes, uh, they didn't teach anything. So when you got on board the ship, you go down the hatch to the engine room, and there you see two great big steam turbines with throttles on them. And you wonder, what's going on? Well, the Navy on the bridge tells you what to do as far as speed. And then you learn the routes, not us so fast, but those that could open the tunnels to get 20 miles, 30 miles, 40 miles up by opening them certain valves so the steam turbines could. So mm-hmm. we, that's what we learned. Where I learned how to look and open a valve, I, would, I wouldn't know I'd be trying to turn the wrong way. I didn't know a thing.
1: You had to learn the hard way, huh? Hard way, right. And you said you're a machinist, mate. So what kinds of things would you do in the machine shop?
2: I was directly in the machine shop like Lades and stuff. We were maintenance. We would patrol steam lines, uh, engines, that, uh, whatever equipment was broke. We would learn to repair them. Fix a steam line if it was broke, seamless, scraping. We did maintenance work was what we really did. We were, we were not a machinist maintenance per se. There's How many machinists can you have on a ship? You know? <laughs> there was two guys. A chief and a first class, and they would learn to run lathe and lathe. And tri- but we didn't have many experience of repairs on it. We excluded to be at the other half. We could go up and kind of see what's going on. Mm-hmm. But um, the blasting you know, of the island from the cruisers. we were lucky enough not to like the Marines that would land and walk yeah. in the water and then get sucked before they even got to the land.
1: Oh. Which was a big, yeah. big issue in that battle. Yeah. Where, yeah. That's where they learned that lesson. Right. So most of us have never experienced this. I'm just curious when you're on that ship whether you're passing ammunition or you're in the engine room and all those guns are firing where your cruiser is shelling one of yeah, these islands. Yeah. What is that like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like?
2: All you could you could hear if you're an Indian engine that when the turret, number 3 was right near us, right above us. And so when those turrets went off, the noise would rock our ship scared like hey what's going on and all the debris from the shell the powder and all this flag and we come sailing down the exhaust onto our engine room and we would smell it but we could hardly wait for it to to be sound so we go up and see what's going on
1: well if you went up and you saw
2: what was going on what did you see we just saw the disaster. That's when you went. I wish you were a Marine at the time. Yeah, yeah. we wanted to see the war. We didn't know the neighbors were going to have anything like that. But then again, we we're glad we could have been killed. I could have been dead in Macon Island.
1: If you guys are firing shells, they're gonna be firing back at you. Yeah.
2: You know, like uh when they were still battling we could we could go on topside and just fly Because we didn't have any control about any noise. The Marines and an the army, they were on the island killing everybody. We would find out that they had turrets, great big fortress made out of concrete and the Marine would hurry back to our ship. we would use our five inch cannons and blow out some try to blow out, but you know they were underground, buried. They were, they were mean. They were very, very vicious I enemy. Mean, but the Marines had their flamethrowers. and their, It was disastrous. To be on the belt in Finland, that was different than my part.
1: But even on your ship, I read, I, I think it was, you guys were supporting some landings in uh, Hollandia, New Guinea. Yeah. In April of '44, where one of... Your own American planes from the carrier Yorktown was having trouble, and it actually flew into the mast of your ship?
2: Yeah, it missed It missed the aftermath. It
1: hit some of the gun mounts as it went into the sea, yeah, but it, right. I, I yeah. read that gas was spraying everywhere, and the the plane exploded, right. and even one crew member from your ship was lost.
2: One, yeah, but most of them were, it was the after it. got hit the mast and landed on the port side. After it hit the starboard side, it landed, and then it exploded. And part of it got hurt, the people that were there, but most of them were under, battle underground.
1: But that must have been a little alarming. Right. That know, something you, like that could happen.
2: You wonder, hey, what's going on? You know.
1: And you guys were all throughout the Marianas there as different raids are happening?
2: Yep. We hit Guam, TVN, Saipan, and we went on to bigger battles. They needed aircraft uh, landing for planes to land and hit battles closer to the enemy. and one of the battles in Okinawa, we, as we were fighting Okinawa, we got a message from headquarters saying that there was a squad of Marines on the other side of the island. They couldn't get off. They were swamped. They could either ocean or the Marines. They were, they they were they, trapped th- or surrounded? They were surrounded, right? So we had to go around the other side of the island and bring these guys out to our ship and then to their people. Some were imagined we took care of those that were hurt, everything else.
1: Well, and even before that, you know, I wanted to ask you about this because there probably hasn't been a battle like this since then in October of 1944, the Battle of Lady Gulf. Yeah. It's the last time that there's been a real battle line Uh, of ships lined up firing their guns at at the enemy. And you guys were part of that.
2: Yep. Yeah.
1: What do you remember about that?
2: Well, we remember, um, we could see the telling us over the, the high at what's going on. They were explaining how many planes and and planes were being shot on fire at the pilots on the planes. They were shooting these guys on left and right, just blasting them out left and right. That's where they chased the planes, Japanese planes, so far that they could not come back. Their gasoline was already depleted. So they had to dunk wherever they were. They had to dunk onto the ship, and that's when we got permission from headquarters to open up your turret lights and try to pick up any sailors you could find.
1: So you guys actually did that?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Did that make you a little nervous to turn your lights on? Yeah,
2: we were, you know, because that's that's the first time they ever did that, and you know, you got submarines, you know, battles closer to the enemy, and one of the battles in Okinawa. As we were fighting Okinawa, we got a message from headquarters saying that there was a squad of Marines on the other side of the island. They couldn't get off. They were swamped. They could either ocean or the Marines. They
1: were, the Navy, they were trapped or surrounded? They, they were
2: surrounded, right? So we had to go around the other side of the island and bring these guys to our ship and then to their people. Some were mad and we took care of those that were hurt everything else
1: well and even before that you know i wanted to ask you about this because there probably hasn't been a battle like this since then in october of 1944 the battle of lady gulf yeah it's the last time that there's been a real battle line uh, of ships right. lined up firing yeah. their guns at, right. at the enemy yeah. and you guys were part of that
2: yep yeah
1: what do you remember about that
2: well we remember um, we could see the telling us over at the- the high what's was going on. They were explaining how many planes and, and planes were being shot down fire at. The pilots on the planes, they were shooting these guys on left and right, just blasting them out left and right. That's where they chased the planes, Japanese planes, so far that they could not come back. Their gasoline was already deployed. So they had to dunk wherever they were. They had to dunk onto the ship. And that's when we got permission from headquarters to open up your turret lights and try to pick up any sailors you could find.
1: So you guys actually did that?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Did that make you a little nervous to turn your lights on? Yeah,
2: we were, you know, because that's that's the first time they ever did that, and you know, you got submarines, you know.
1: But he survived that risky situation and the rest of the war in the Pacific. And this weekend, he is celebrating birthday number 100. More about that milestone and more about World War II from Mike Kalustyan when Hometown Heroes comes right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with Search Strategy Marketing not about how much you spend it's about the strategy behind it and search strategy marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free no obligation assessment of your current efforts learn how to outrank your competition with a free customized action plan just for hometown heroes listeners just go to hometownheroesradio.com and click on that light bulb logo for search strategy marketing it doesn't matter what your business is search strategy marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level.
0: Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler. Brought to you by this local station and its sponsors. And presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments. One of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com.
1: Welcome back to Hometown Heroes on a weekend in which World War II Navy veteran Mike Kalustyan celebrates birthday number 100. He happens to be one of the last survivors of the epic battle of Lady Gulf. The last time the world has seen a true battle line at sea, Mike spent most of that engagement passing ammunition.
2: And the big line, and we're loading. These things are heavy, and we're these guys on the 40 millimeters. One on those shells, because you know they can't fire. So the big line keeps going. Come on, you guys, push, push those, get those things up there, and they're heavy. They're loaded. There's four cases of four. That's sixteen in a in a case. That would have to. You have to load up to the after-after in the room. Mm -hmm. And uh, you wanted to see what's going on because you hear the noise from the 40, you know. And you say, hey, they're going to hit us, you know.
1: And for those who aren't familiar, the 40 millimeter is an anti-aircraft gun. Right, yeah. So the job you're doing may make the difference with whether or not a kamikaze hits your ship.
2: Right, yeah.
1: So that's pretty important work.
2: Yeah. Our biggest danger was uh, escorting the carrier. If there was a torpedo coming toward you, you were supposed to take that hit.
1: If you know that a submarine or a torpedo bomber or whatever is targeting yeah. the carrier, the yeah. Enterprise, you guys are the sacrificial lamb that's right. supposed to turn your your hull in we, front of it.
2: We were supposed to take the blow. Yeah. yeah.
1: In other words, you're expendable.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Is that something where... Again, I'm just asking because I wasn't there. Yeah. I don't know. That Lady Gulf battle. Yes. When that's finally over, is that a big sense of relief or, or yeah. wow? Yeah, because
2: yeah. we had killed, we had done how many ships were lost? Of uh, I think that was one of the biggest biggest battles we had, and most of those people were gone, either sunk them or whatever, bombed them, whatever, in the planes by the Navy chasing the enemy back to their country, shooting them down. You know, hearing all this noise and flare, and stuff, you know, it, it scared you. You wonder, hey, what's going on here? There's so many ships. You look like there's ships all over the place, all kinds of stuff: transports, carriers, whatever.
1: Uh, you said something there. You said, I heard you use the word scared, uh-huh. and I never want that to seem like a, a trite question. I know it's serious business, but were you scared? Were you concerned that you might yeah, not make it home? Right,
2: that time, yeah.
1: Is that something you thought about much, whether or not you'd survive?
2: Before, I didn't think about it. But now that war, with all these worst battles going on, it scared me. I said, hey, I may, I may not make it, you know. Mm. And I said, oh, geez, thinking about home and what's going to happen if I don't go back.
1: You mentioned Okinawa. Yeah. You guys had to come to the rescue of some Marines who were right. cut off, surrounded. Box, right. You did that. And I'm guessing you were probably there quite a while at Okinawa.
2: We were there. We bombed that island for a while before it landed. We we would travel in from a, a, there was a couple islands away from us. And we would go there, load up, go back and bat. We battled Okinawa for I don't know how long before the early Marines landed. And to me, it was Easter Sunday that the Marines landed on Okinawa. Mm-hmm. We would go there and bomb. You know how many bombs we bombed? Days and days we bombed, and still, when they went to land the Marines, they were under battle. They were hurt. There was all kinds of mines. Everything. uh I give credit to the Marines for a lot. For them. you gotta have got to be in World War Two or any war. You know.
1: Did you guys ever bring wounded Marines aboard your ship?
2: Yeah. We brought that hand crew. I don't know how many guys were hung up. We came around and got them. The medical helped them cure whatever damage they had. That's why we loaded them onto the new crews.
1: Did you have a sense that things were getting close to the end? That Japanese may surrender no.
2: soon? No, I didn't think. No, I didn't think about. Hey, it's still going to be over with. now in 45 August when the war was over with, that was a nice relief. And then they found out that you could get discharged by the number of points. Then we found out if you send all those people, like the engine room or the cooks, or where, you could not get discharged because who would run that ship if there was nobody on board with intelligence to run their ship? So our points. We're off. Still, you couldn't. Go. You couldn't go. You had to stay on board the ship. So I had to stay on the ship for another year, going back and forth to Japan and patrolling the, the Yellow Sea between Korea and China. We knew then in Korea that the third thats where the next war is going to be. We just knew that mm. from from the instinct. The enemy would come out and say, "You can't go. You got to go get. You know, go in China. Don't go on our side. We don't want you." You could see it already, 46. Yeah, right. yeah, they would chase it What
1: was the hardest thing to deal with? Because you were on that ship for, what, two and a half years?
2: 43, 44, 45, 46, four years. The hardest part was when the war was over with. I can't go because our chief machinist made engine room. you got to learn how to stay on board and drive that ship. you got to have a cook to cook the food, the laundry, you know. Life goes on still, even though... You had the points,
1: but they needed you to run the ship.
2: Even though war was over,
1: yeah. So that was the the biggest challenge for you? Yeah,
2: that I had to stay longer.
1: Well, what was it like to come back home after all that time on ship?
2: Okay, when I finally got discharged from the Pacific, we had to go through the Panama Canal, which was very interesting. How up and down, Mm -hmm. took a while to get through there. Then we went all the way around... To New Orleans and docked there in um, downtown, and we let the surgeon come and see our ship with his name and everything. Then yeah, because you're com-
1: you're on the ship to New Orleans, and right. you actually bring it back to New Orleans. Right, we were yeah.
2: right downtown. We made a couple of days' liberty. Then from there, we went to Philadelphia, gave the ship to Mattball people, and we got our crews to come to Great Lakes on the train. They listed all your what if we wanted any equipment or any aches or anything else? And like a young kid, you don't answer your problem like, oh, my teeth or my eyes. You're too young yet. You don't have any of them, So we never reported any report, even vetoed myself. We never reported, oh, I got bad teeth or my eyes or my teeth. No, but we got discharged, came home, and after a while, when you go to Great Lakes and say, oh, I don't see it on the record. You didn't. You didn't say this. You didn't say that.
1: So did you have some issues you would have written down in retrospect? I, well, we
2: could have. You know, like um, my teeth. I, I, we had a dentist on our ship. Now, once did I get called to the dentist to see my teeth? We saw a barber shop. We'd get a haircut. That was a must. But to go to a dentist, no.
1: So you had some teeth problems when you got back? Yeah.
2: Right. They
1: said, it's it's not on your record. What about your, your hearing from being around all those guns all the time?
2: Well, I like a said, I never reported. I should have, but I didn't. I should have done that because I could have got compensation. Because for a couple of years I was under, in the Indian room, all the throttle and and the blower would blow all the stuff down your ear and noise from the turret going off. Never reported that.
1: So you we, you finally get back to Milwaukee, right? What was it like to see your family again?
2: Oh, it was nice. Very nice to see all the people and walk around the town. It's not a big town. It's a little town. Just walk around and see, oh, this is where I used to play the pool table, you know, where I first went in there when the war started. It was still there. Mm-hmm. But the pool tables were gone. It was just a magazine store now, you know, whole racks of all kinds of magazines and stuff. There was no no pool table anymore. But. It was nice going up and down, go down the train. We had a train track that went right between the north side and south side, north side of town. So you could go to one theater on the train track side and one track on this side. You just walk around sightseeing, meeting people you know, just enjoying, you know. They had a bubbler in, in front of a drugstore. You'd go and drink cold water. Remember the bubbler days? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was it was a nice little town. Was it
1: challenging for you to get back to civilian life after being around all those Navy guys for those years?
2: Our, the most important thing was our conversation, our words. Our regulation was terrible. Oh, we could speak English without, without swearing. Oh, it was really bad. My mother would slap my mouth every time i I couldn't. It was just one of those things. I couldn't learn to how not to say the bad words. But after a while, we got into the factory, and then we started friends were getting married. Little by little, friends were finding a girlfriend, getting married. And uh, after a while, some guy came up to me. He was Armenian, married to a non-Armenian. Came to me and said, "Don't you know nice Armenian girl you could marry?" I said, "There's only one I like, you know." And my cousin calls. Her home in Racine, she was in South Milwaukee by her niece's house, you know, visiting. And so I called her, asked an appointment, made an appointment with Elsie to see her in Racine. There was an Armenian affair going on there next week. Mm -hmm. She said, okay, I'll meet you there. And that was it. I met her. We fell in love more. I got married in 53, had 54. And fifty six. Then we came to California. Life goes on.
1: How'd you end up here in Visalia?
2: My brother was here. He married a Nermani girl. She had visited Milwaukee to some friends. Well, Harry got to see her. He liked her. And when she went back, he went back and met her. She married him. And then she says, "Come out here. It's warmer. Getting nice out here." And so we locked up our family, went to Viceroy, and that was it.
1: You know, there's a few other things that I'm thinking about. One, you gave our country more than three years in the Navy. Yeah. Did you take advantage of those GI Bill benefits and go to school?
2: I should have, but I didn't. If I had stayed in Milwaukee, they had Marquette University. Yeah. Oh, I should have. You know, it was free. All you do is everything was free books, everything. No, I want to go. I want to go. I want to work in the factory where I'm working. Yeah. What kind of factory? The Cyrus Army. They make the big excavating shovels that dig up dirts and stuff. Okay.
1: Yeah. And then around these parts, you worked at uh, a big hospital here in Visalia as an accountant. Yeah. I know it's not easy to always answer a question like this or see it, but those years for you from age. 19 to 22, 23. Those are some pretty important years. that yeah, You yeah. were wearing that uniform and serving on the, yeah. the USS New Orleans. Yeah. How do you think that affected the rest of your life? How do you think your service in the Navy had oh, an impact on the rest of your life?
2: Well, I think my brain should have been thinking better about being more accurate with yourself. You know, find something professional and do it. You know, grow up and be You're a young man now. You're you going to vote this and that. And we just went around. We got we belonged to the fifty-two fifty club, which was dumb. But none of us didn't want a gang of our gang. We did get our fifty dollars every other guy would get with a check, so we'd use that to go drink and whatever. whatever. I should have matured. I should have went to market like I should have, you know, because it was free. Nothing to do. And you could have got any trade you wanted, what experience you wanted.
1: Well, I don't want to leave anything <laughs> out that's important to you, but I know, you know, one thing a little more recently that you experienced, you and your son-in-law got to go with a bunch of other veterans right. and their guardians right. on an honor flight, Central Valley Honor Flight, to Washington, D.C. to yeah. see the World War II Memorial. Oh. And those
2: others. What was that like for you? That was very exciting. I, I, first time ever been to Washington. But to be all these beautiful countries with all these people on board that ship that were... Like me, a next veteran of whatever, and to go to Washington D.C. and see all these beautiful places, it was very, very rewarding. Bill took good care of me.
1: I'm sure he did. Yeah. To be at that World War II memorial, it's a bit pretty big place. Yeah, you know, there's a pillar that says California, where you live now. There's one yeah. that says Wisconsin, where yeah. you grew up. Yeah. There's the fountain there. There's the Atlantic and the Pacific, and then there's four thousand gold stars representing 406,000 Americans who didn't come yeah, home. right. What did you think about when you were looking at that?
2: When I went there, my biggest thing that made me cry was when I saw the Korean moral with those Marines with their drain and draped And when you're walking, you could look at a guy, and he looked like he couldn't at you. He's looking at As you walk, he's looking at you. He's looking. Oh, it was that's one of the of the murals. That was one of the worst ones. The Air Force, the Army. This was the worst of it. to me. It was the one that really touched my heart.
1: So at the the, the Korean, Korean War, War Veterans yeah. Memorial, there's right. there's all they call them the ghost soldiers yeah, out right, there. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you're saying when you walked by, it seemed like the statues' eyes were following right. you. Right.
2: If you followed one guy, he'd follow you. It was. It was one of those. To me, it was one of the worst. Mural that I saw that made tears to my eyes.
1: Yeah. When you say the worst, you mean the most haunting or stirring right. emotional. The most, yeah, they're
2: all nice. They're all great. Yeah. But I'm telling you, the one that touched me the most was the Korean War. And you had
1: been off the coast of Korea at the end of World War II, but your brother fought in the Korean right. War. Right.
2: My brother fought in the Korean War.
1: And, you know, and I bring up the gold stars at the World War II memorial because a lot of the guys that I meet now know somebody. Maybe it was someone back home in South Milwaukee or someone you met in the Navy along the way. Did you know anyone who didn't make it home from the war who's one of those 406,000 who died? I had
2: a few. Yeah, one was Char Bannerian, and Charlie. He died in the Philippines. We grew up together as a buddy. He was about the same size as me and everything else. We enjoyed things together. But he went into the Philippines, and he got killed there. And to see their name... And the gold plaque, it, it makes you wonder what's going on. Where was he? What happened? Why did he go away? Mm. Why did the war come? You wonder how many guys. Uh, the worst is when they when they keep bringing about the the navy, the war, the swimming. You know, you know, you're dumb. What do you join the navy for?
3: Yeah,
1: when you read about ships like the Indianapolis or others that were sunk, and you would have been in the water. Yeah,
2: I would have been gone, you know, because I can't swim, and I was little, you know. Those guys were beating up people left and right to save the, uh, you know, and guys were going off like, oh, I see an island or whatever. Off they would go into. It was sad,
1: awful, and the sharks too. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's why I say, you know, Mike, you were lucky, you know, your ship. Could have been, we could have been picked for the Indianapolis because they're a little older than us. The Indianapolis is an older ship. So they were picked in.
1: They were picked because they were fast and they also happened to be at Mare Island at the right time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to leave anything out that's important to you, but I I do want to say thank you. Thank you for serving our country and thank you for telling us your story. Is there something that you'd say
2: you're most proud of? Well, I'm proud of joining the Navy and having God save me from. Disaster and come and be a wonderful, thankful American citizen. I fought in the war for my country. I love my country for now and now. I can see it now. People are honoring the World War to veterans. If you see a flag or a, a hat, honor, thank you, I'll buy your meal or I'll do the, Yeah, you know, They're all thankful. They're all thankful that you did your part, your share. We're proud of you. Thank you, buddy. I've had people from older people to younger kids buy me, thank you, and pay for my meal that I didn't know. When I really leave, it's been paid. So then when you say they say, hey, they're proud that they still live in this country.
1: That's what Mike Kalustian shared with us when he was 96. Those words have only been underscored since. And now he's 100 years old, so I have just a few more questions for him. Do you have any advice for anybody listening who would like to make it to 100 like you?
2: Well, I would think the most important thing would be to put their put their life into Jesus. That's the only way. He's been to me great many storms. They could have drowned long time ago, but life saved me, and that's one of the... Wonderful life of being left to see my grandkid, my grandson growing a wonderful thank you.
1: And you're wearing your hat from the USS New Orleans. Yeah. And that makes me wonder, is there a moment that stands out from your time aboard ship where you didn't think you were gonna wake up the next day, let alone make it to one hundred?
2: Most of the time in the battles, we were kind of safe. We were a little bit further away from the ships, you know. But with battles in Guam, Saipan, Okinawa, Tinna, we hoped that we could secrete the battle because we had nothing to worry about. We were were too young, and we didn't think if we were going to die or not. We just just went and did our job, and that was it.
1: And is there something that keeps you going now that motivates you to get up every day and...
2: I get up early in the morning at 4 o'clock. I just keep going. I have my breakfast ready for me. I'm just thankful that I can really get up in the morning and and that's very by getting my breakfast done. I'm just fine and thankful that I'm doing this good. Like I say, I'm still thankful to all the people that I meet and see at church, and I'm very thankful that they all, all come and say happy birthday, happy anniversary, happy 100 years. Thank you. Thank you, thank you.
1: And is there anything that in those hundred years hasn't happened yet that you're still hoping might happen?
2: I would love to see my grandson married (laughs) and have a baby, but I'll see him in heaven.
1: You know, another thing that comes to mind, just because we're in the Christmas season here, right? Do you remember any Christmases aboard
2: ship? We had a place where the guys had musical instruments, and we would play Christmas songs. And during the lull of a battle, we would have Christmas. These guys all had instruments. Somehow they brought them on board ship. Anyway, and they would all have music, and we would go in the, in the mid deck of the ship where the airplanes are, and we would have Christmas songs. But no candy, no, no, no cake, no nothing.
1: Well, I'm just thinking about that and imagining. So you go from one moment, the sound of all those big guns going off nonstop to. The next moment, you're in there singing Christmas carols together?
2: Yeah. Aurora's was, my first Christmas came two years later in 1942. I didn't get no passage or anything until the 1944. And when I got them, I had Christmas presents from Wisconsin. But the cake and all that stuff was old and gone and nothing nothing to say to give to anybody It was... Nothing was there to give. We just thank Happy Birthday and Merry Christmas, and we enjoyed it before the battles were going to come on.
1: So you're opening this package from home in Wisconsin yeah. thinking there's going to be some great stuff in there, and it was all crumbled or moldy crumbled, or nothing?
2: Right, right. We had the newspaper from our hometown two years ago. I had to put them in order to read them to make sure who's what what. And I told the kids in the mail that the Christmas present came late Thank you, wait for me until I get home, because the cakes, there were no cakes, but crumbles. Baggages were broken and torn apart.
1: Do you remember any of the songs that you might have sung aboard ship, the Christmas carols that
2: you guys sang? Jingle Bell and bethlehem they were all Christmas songs, all crying. Everybody was in a in, in happy mood that they were, had a lull where we could go and sing. And if it was during a battle... You know if you we missed the meal and you could there was no time to eat any meal because of the battle, but then, after the lull, they would get a cold sandwich, bologna sandwich, and maybe coffee, but that's about it. There was nothing else you could get.
1: Well, we know his Christmas meal this year is going to be a little more luxurious than that. And the perspective from those Christmases aboard ship will help him appreciate it even more. Once again, happy 100th birthday to Mike Kalustian. You can find his smiling face at hometownheroesradio.com, where the podcast version of this episode also includes a brief comment about Mike from his son-in-law. Thanks for listening to Hometown Heroes Today. I'm Paul Leffler, hoping you'll join us again next time when we're reminded again through the stories of our veterans that freedom is
0: not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at providentpayments.com.
1: I promised you a little perspective from Mike Kalustyan's son-in-law.
3: So here he is, Bill Diltz. Being around Mike and being exposed to uh, his stories from growing up in Wisconsin and uh, uh, his time in the war has been uh, so enlightening over the last uh, several years. And uh, we do thoroughly enjoy being able to help him and to be around to help him get, get through the day. Also, the uh, VA has been a a great assistance in providing caregivers for him. He is 100 years old. He's in his own home uh, and does really well. Just a a true (laughs) gem to be around and uh, very enlightening as his son-in-law i just uh, i appreciate him and i appreciate uh, the family that he raised and as you can tell any time a conversation with him might lead you to another story that you may not have heard he's happy all the time uh, he tries to get along with everybody he has a group of uh, guys that he hangs out with on uh, um, friday mornings and, uh, and goes to breakfast with and uh uh, they've been a great inspiration to him, uh, and a lot of people. A lot of people have poured in a lot of love to him. Not just his friends from church, but his neighbors as well, and uh, his family.